You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Adrian Cohen, an assistant professor of cultural anthropology at Colorado State University. She has conducted extensive ethnographic fieldwork in Guinea, West Africa on urban dance and political change, as well as in the United States among migrant artists from Guinea. Dr. Cullen is the author of Infinite Repertoire on Dance and Urban Possibility in Post-Socialist Guinea. Her work has appeared in the American Ethnologist, Journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute, African Studies Review, as well as Africa, the Journal of the International African Institute. So we're here today with Dr. Cohen. Thank you for joining. Um, so before we dig into this um, project, I wanted to start by asking you the origins of this project. So a sort of invitation to narrate us into it, how you came to these questions, if you had any sort of um, concerns, personal, ethical, and philosophical that drew you to the questions um, in infinite repertoire. Dr. Drabinsky always has a spiel that when you write a book, it takes over your whole life. (laughs) So why this project um, and why now? Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I mean, this project was, it was very personal for me. I was a... um, you know, 20 something kid. And I was really interested in West African dance. And so I bought a one way ticket to West Africa after college. And, um, you know, as 22 year olds do, I kind of, you know, went around uh, West Africa and just essentially followed what seemed interesting to me. And I ended up in Conakry. Um, and after having spent some time in Mali and, and in um, rural areas of Guinea, I was just completely smitten with Conakry because it's just this city where, um, you know, people are, there are dance troops in every, you know, Cartier. I mean, I think, you know, you're from Senegal and I think there's some similar energy in Senegal. I've actually never spent time in Senegal, mm-hmm. um, but for, for, you know, people who aren't familiar with this part of the world, I think, you know, sometimes I describe it as like, imagine what soccer must be in Brazil or something where like in every neighborhood, there's a soccer club or like, right, it's really kind of woven into the fabric of, of social life. Um, and so in Conakry, you know, there were like dance troops in every neighborhood, people were very serious about, about their dance. And at that time in my life, that's really all I was interested in, you know, so I, I just, I wanted to learn how to do this dance. And, and I ended up just spending years there and I found a job and, you know, was able to, to hang out and, and spend a lot of time learning dance and language. And I think, you know, my 22, 23, 24 year old self, um, 
you know, I thought I was just interested in dance and language. But of course, you know, by being immersed in this dance community, I recognized that I was learning all kinds of stuff about, you know, what people cared about and about, you know, political history and about gender identity and about how people, what people loved, you know, um, that that I think kind of brought me the sensibility of, of an ethnographer and that essentially, you know, took me into, into anthropology. <laughs> That's really um, interesting. That's a cool story. <laughs> a one-way ticket to West Africa. Um, do you remember like the first time you saw like the dance circles? Do you remember the feeling of <laughs> when mm. you encountered that? You know, I mean, I think it was a bit gradual because I had um, I had studied West African dance in the U.S. and then I also spent a semester in Mali as an exchange student in college. So I had spent some time in West Africa, but I think, you know, Conakry because of its you know political history that we'll get into later, the intensity of the dance culture there is, um, I think, at a, at a different level than I had experienced in Mali. I mean people were really invested and, you know, there were dancers kind of popping from ceremony to ceremony and from rehearsal to rehearsal in a way that was just like had this kind of commitment to it. Um, so I don't remember actually the very first time I um, saw one of these ceremonies, but I remember being kind of overwhelmed by the the way that, that the energy of the dance scene in Conakry seemed like it had a kind of force and commitment that I hadn't seen in other places. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, sorry, I don't have like a, this, this is a long, this is like over 20 years ago. Oh, no, of course. I, mean, so I, I was just quite curious. I'm like, hmm, I wonder how that was when you mm. first encountered, but can you talk to us a little bit about the name? So how did you come mm. across Infinite Repertoire? There are a couple things that inform that title. So the, the one thing I talk about in the book is this um, this Susu adage, and Susu is the is the lingua franca of Conakry. So um, dancers often say "faremukoloma," which means dance cannot be known. And um, there's this idea that you know there's sort of infinite possibilities with the body, right? We only have like two arms and two legs and a head, but somehow that those those appendages can you know combine and keep creating new kinds of movement and and there's an, a kind of an unending quality to that and i think that is that's that's one thing that, that people always say about just how there's this kind of infinite possibility in the body um, and so so i took that idea of infinite repertoire from from that susu adage um, but in the book, I also write uh, about how this particular dance form that we can call Ghanaian ballet for lack of a, of a better term. I mean, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have a name in, in Konakri. People just call it dance. Um, but, but we'll call it Ghanaian ballet, which is what the book is about. It's about this kind of staged um, dance form that, that um, has this very long political history in Guinea. 
But in the book, I also trace the way that dance has transformed over time. And in, in that sense, it's also a kind of infinite repertoire where it, where it doesn't ha- it doesn't sort of have a, a set of, you know, moves and meanings that stay stable, but that rather transform as people transform and as the society transforms. Um, so, you know, I think I think that's the other main way that I that I think about the title. I guess finally, an anthropology repertoire is a is a word that that um, anthropologists often use to get at something not, you know, something opposed to structure or, you know, some of these older terms that we used to use to, to describe what's happening in social life, um, um, structure or system or something. Um, often anthropologists use the term repertoire. And, and of course, that crosses into dance studies. So I just I, I like that that term for that kind of attention to mobility. Mm-hmm. I really like how you break that down, and especially the infiniteness. Um, you definitely get that sense across the book in how dance was used um, as like anti-colonial stances, colonial stances in all these different um, eras. But what I particularly like, so I love this theory that you put forward, and you, I'm going to say quote because it's your book. <laughs> Um, but you say creativity is negotiated with authority in dance, mm-hmm. and pretty much how the body is this key site for producing political, metaphysical, and social power. That I had to stick, you know, with that sentence for a little bit. But partic- especially that first one, how creativity negotiate is a negotiation with authority. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you speak to a little bit to how this post-independent government? Um, like in the 1960s, how they relied on the ballet artist's creative manipulation essentially to generate public feeling as a way of nation building. Because um, mm. I saw how you talked about that in Toure's era. Even though I studied it, it's interesting enough, I never really paid attention to what <laughs> performing arts was doing in the background and how it was being used and how during these times you had Chinua Achebe and how um, they had these conferences on what language should African literature be used, right? right? Um, It was still in the midst of the conversation with the Cold War happening and how U.S. was going to... So I was like, oh my gosh, yes, performative arts, so not just literary texts. We're also talking about the whole thing. Um, mm. That was a lot of words, but yes. Yeah, so feel free to like speak on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so maybe I'll take you up on the part about um, sort of the body as a site for producing these different forms of power, right? So there's like political power, and metaphysical power, and social power. And I think throughout the book, I try to trace the way. Um, the dance has been kind of tied into this kind of the, some of these broader political themes um, over various different eras, right? So, so first is what we can call, and I bundle pre-colonial and colonial because I, I don't do a deep historical dive into this time, um, but I, but I do try to give a kind of gloss of of what it meant, say, to be an artisan. Um, in in the pre-colonial and colonial eras in this part of the world, right? And so there were there were these sort of lineage artisans, artisan families. So you were like born into it, and then you um, you were. It was it, it, some people refer to it as a 
as a caste system. I don't know if I think about it as caste, but definitely, you know, groups of people who were considered um, able to, to, to kind of do certain jobs, right? And so there was this whole group of people called Nyamakala who were essentially considered people who could like wield um, a kind of vital energy called Nyamak. And, um, and Nyamakala included blacksmiths and leather workers and potters, but also griots who were like these bards, Manika, Manika bards. And, and griots are interesting because, you know, they were the people who would manipulate um, language in the form of song, usually, um, in order to shape the social world. So shape people's reputations. They're considered praise singers, right? I mean, same in, in Senegal. Um, but so so it's these these griots who who were considered to to be pretty powerful shapers of the social and they were considered powerful in all kinds of like esoteric ways too they were buried separately from other people um they were considered like a, a bit scary right because of this kind of power that they that they wielded and the griots were precisely like the main figures um, when uh, in the socialist era when secretary really tried to kind of pull artisans into this nationalistic project where performing arts became the kind of media of of nation building right and so griots I mean they were wordsmiths they were also good dancers often um, they were at liberty to do just be sort of loud and and um, do uh, you know dance openly in ways that other people were not at liberty to do, um, and and griots were really brought into into um, the kind of nation building of secretary during the socialist era. So during that era, artists and people who had once been sort of in artisan lineages became um, explicit political actors. And the whole lineage kind of framework was blown open where, you know, Toure was not interested in people only being able to, you know, dance who were born into a, who, who had a certain last name, right? So, so, you know, during the socialist era, anyone could become an artist. Many people were encouraged to be artists who were not from those lineage backgrounds. Um, but I think it's important to, to kind of notice that there's this history of artisans having this kind of, you know, political force and metaphysical force because griots were also the mouthpieces of kings and leaders and they were the ones who forged um, people's, people's, you know, social reputations, right? Um, so during the socialist era, I mean, one of the arguments I make is that Segutere really was was aware of this kind of um, metaphysical valence to the arts. And while he oversaw this whole campaign of demystification um, that was supposed to separate the arts from, you know, say that the, the magic, right, of, of um, how, you know, so, sort of ritual processes and whatnot in, in villages. I mean, realistically, I think if, if, art had been completely separated from that kind of valence, it wouldn't have had the kind of power that it did to, to shape um, to shape the social and to shape the nation, right? So, so I think it's really important that there was that history. And I don't think it's an accident that Secretary was so, was so interested in artisans and in, and in the arts as a kind of medium. Right. Um, and then the third era that I that I um, focus on and that I focus on ethnographically, of course, because it's 
you know, available for ethnography um, is the contemporary era in which, you know, young people are using this dance again to forge their social lives and, and in this time in an urban life world. But I don't think that the contemporary use of dance is completely separated again from this very long history of artists being kind of, um, you know, powerful manipulators of what was thought to be a kind of vital energy. So I just want to break down um, that demystification point Mm -hmm. that you made. So you mentioned in the book how in 1959, um, the state launched a campaign called Demystification, uh, which was aimed at eradicating the indigenous religions and accompanying masquerades of Guinean ethnic minorities. So anything really that had to do with um, tradition, right? Which, well, indigenous tradition, um, traditional Guinea Conakry ways. So they kind of did this, um, but it collided with the very essence of what, you know, the the dance is, which took most of its um, being to mean about power. So how did this collide of the dance and its essence you know, kind of trying to be eradicated, but at the same time with this demystification law. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I guess I don't think about it as a collision, but rather a harnessing, right? I mean, I think that, as I was saying before, I think, like, Secretary was very smart insofar as he understood that, that um, you know, dance and music and masquerade were at the heart of local politics in many places, right? I mean, we had what's sometimes referred to as secret societies, um, these sort of societies of men who were in charge of various aspects of, of political life in, um, in, you know, rural villages. Um, and there were all kinds of, of, of you know, masquerades and, um, and rhythms and, and dances that were only available to, say, the initiated or only able to be seen by certain people and whatnot. So I think Secretary was very aware of the fact that if one could, if one, say, head of state could harness the, 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 the power of dance and masquerade, um, you know, there, there was something there that was uh, um, powerful, I think, across uh, you know, across various different ethnicities. Um, and so so I don't really see it as a collision, but as a kind of strategic harnessing, right? And, and I mean, demystification is actually one of the topics that has been treated the most extensively in the anthropological literature on Guinea, which is pretty, um, it's, it's a pretty small body of literature. Um, I think mostly because Guinea was closed to the outside world until 84. So you don't have these like long lineages of anthropologists who, you know, go to Guinea and and teach their students to go to Guinea, et cetera. Um, But, you know, like my primary advisor in my PhD, Mike McGovern, has written several books on Guinea, the first of which was all about demystification called Unmasking the State and all about this question of like, well, why did why did this state care so much about, you know, about dance and music? Why that? Right. I mean, if you're a post-colonial, you know, head of head of state and, and you're you know, your your country is struggling in all kinds of ways, like why does dance and music become the focus and and why was this demystification campaign so, um, you know, so, uh, why did it seem so urgent, right, to the secretary government? 
So, I mean, my answer to that, and, and um, you know, Mike, I think, has some really fascinating arguments about this stuff, too. And he's not the only one to write a book about this, right? Jay Straker wrote a book about demystification. Um, there are a couple of different books about demystification in Guinea that are, that are really fascinating. Um, so, but, you know, I, I, I think that there, this kind of way in which Sekouchere harnessed um, uh, some of the kind of political promise of dance and music was was really important to the longevity of dance in Guinea and 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 the fact that it wasn't sort of um, it wasn't actually demystified, right? I mean, even in contemporary in the contemporary dance scene, um, when somebody puts on a mask, they may say it doesn't have its quote unquote, you know, like esoteric power intact, say, in the city, but it still does in the countryside. Or you can only dance this mask if you are properly washed or whatever. So the point is, demystification was always, you know, a partial, right? Um, and it was always a kind of strategic move, I think, more than, than a literal move. I guess that's my inter interpretation. <laughs> Thank you for that. And just to um, ask on the other note you made when you're looking at the contemporary, I was curious to know how did you see the relationship develop or that relationship between the young dancers and the elders? How, how was that in terms of them using things in different ways or in more modern ways, which that's a very tricky word, I feel like sometimes. <laughs> um, but how did that, how did they work together or not work together? You're talking about in contemporary Conakry? Mm -hmm. Yeah, with the young dancers and the um, having to work with the elders. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a theme that I think pops up in the book in different ways where, um, so I, I set up um, the the city's dance infrastructure along the lines of troops and ceremonies, right? And in some ways, this is kind of a heuristic for understanding how people are um, moving through the city and, and developing themselves as artists and interacting with one another and learning and, and um, you know, learning from one another and, and, and stuff like that with, with dance. But troops and ceremonies are also, I think, a way of thinking about the some of the intergenerational stuff, because the troops are very much, um, and maybe we should backtrack a little bit. So during the Ture era, these there were dance troops organized from the level of, you know, like very local um, up through the national. And so there were these four tiers, and it was all organized by the state. Um, so even the, the very local um, there was like section, uh, section federation. Uh, I don't know. I forgot. There, there are four levels up to the federation and national were the highest, and and then oh, it was it, it was communal, sectional, federational, um, um, national. And so anyway, the the point is the very lowest level was like it might have been say in your school there would be a dance troupe, right? Um, and then from from up from there there would be like in your your sort of slightly wide, wider region, there would be a dance troupe, right? And people would be funneled into the very prestigious national companies. Um, 
through all of these competitions that happened um, at the level of the state. And so the state was really responsible for organizing this very complex um, system of, of troops and, um, and competitions. And so that was the, the way that this kind of national um, attention to the arts was, was organized and facilitated. Now, when Sacred Trey died in 1984, the, um, the, the, the sort of state support for the art diminished dramatically. So while under in the Trey era, there were like over 8,000 troops nationwide, um, all now when I say state funded, you know, realistically, the 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 very low level, um, you know, school troops, they, they were not receiving a great amount of funding, but there, there was this whole system, right? And the and the and the um, federal and national troops were, were definitely funded and revered and celebrated and whatnot. So and there were there were these great, you know, competitions that were um, that were organized by the state. And so if you if you were in a a, a regional troop that was really um, doing well, and then you came and uh, to the to the capital for the competition. It was really like this amazing experience. A lot of people recalled. Um, so, so if you just kind of picture that there was that time when the state was really invested in in the performing arts, and then after 1984, all of that disappeared. And no, and also, you know, I mean, keep in mind that during that um, state socialist sort of performing arts organization, the, the whole point of that whole system was to funnel the very best artists from the countryside into these prestigious national troops, right? Um, so when the state was no longer invested in that whole process, um, much of the kind of training and recruitment of artists for the national troops became located in the capital city and became privatized. So instead of, you know, the state organizing these troops and encouraging them and having all of these, you know, competitions and whatnot, you just had young, um, not necessarily young, but people from um, the, the ex-national companies or ex-federation companies um, founding their own troops. And so these troops that popped up all over the capital city became a kind of infrastructure for what is now what I'm thinking of as Conakry Ballet, um, right? But but and, and it's also why I end up focusing the book on the city because the city has now been become this this. Um, this really kind of separate arena for dance and music where, you know, you have these private companies that that train artists for the national companies, or sometimes people don't even want to go to the national companies because the private companies are, are so good. Um, and, but, but that is pretty much cut off from the countryside. So you no longer have say national companies going and searching out, you know, in um, companies out in, in rural villages in order to find talent, they just go within Conakry, right? Um, so in the, the generational component um, is there insofar as like the, the companies, those troops, or they're also called ballets, those ballets tend to be run by Ture era uh, elders, right? Now, of course, that's changing now because some of these elders are dying, right? I mean, they're getting old. Um, some of them, you know, they may still be around, but they're, you know, they have sort of younger people working as the stage director or working as the person who's there every day and who's, you know, got a lot of energy or who's demonstrating the dance or whatever. 
Um, but but those troops are still places where you know young people are learning from older people and take directions from older people, um, and where really the 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 ideas for you know what dance should look like or what it should be or what kinds of messages it should contain um, really still come from people who were trained in the Turay era, right? Um, whereas the 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 ceremonies that I write about are really just you know, um, they're street ceremonies organized for all kinds of different events. You know, um, it can be for uh, baptism. I mean, it's not Christian, but right, like, a, um, you know, baby baby naming ceremony. Um, it's <laughs> the term batem, right? So like, um, but, or, you know. What you meant, because in Wolof, it's called ginti. So it's a naming ceremony, which I guess would be equivalent. So I was I'm nodding my head. I was like, oh, wait, we should verbalize it. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, um, you know, baby naming ceremonies, um, ceremonies, coming of, uh, coming of age ceremonies. So various different sort of circumcision, excision ceremonies, um, you know, homecoming, sometimes even birthdays, even though people don't really celebrate birthdays. Um, but, you know, all kinds of rites of passage, weddings, a lot of weddings. So whenever there's a big rite of passage in Conakry, there's some kind of dance ceremony. Now, it depends on the ethnic group. And we'll get into, I mean, we don't have to get into that. But like, if you are an artist in one of these troops, you're attending these ceremonies all the time. And, um, and the Dunumba is, is the one that I focus on, I think, the most extensively, because that's really the ceremony that artists are most um, interested in. It's the one that is really the ceremony of artists. Like uh, other people don't necessarily host Dunumbas. If somebody gets married, if they're not attached to the art scene, they might not throw a Dunumba, right? Whereas an artist is going to have a Dunumba for every, you know, big rite of passage in their life. And they will go to the Dunumba of their friends and, and whatnot. So I, I end up focusing a lot on these Dunumbas. And in terms of like intergenerational dynamics, the the, the ceremonies are really fascinating because that's where young people are are calling the shots, right? I mean, the the elders might come and watch. Sometimes you'll have like a a, a a troop director in the audience, or sometimes they even dance, which is fairly rare. Um, but when they come, I mean, even if they're disgruntled in some way or one way or another, if they don't like what people are dancing or they find it too lewd or they think it's too disorganized or whatever, they don't really get to weigh in. They can grumble, you know, they can say what they want to say, but they don't get to stop the show. They don't get to, you know, beat anyone. <laughs> they don't get to sanction anyone. Um, and so I think, you know, ceremonies are a really interesting space where young people are, are producing movement that they're interested in, and they're learning from each other, and they're, they're sharing ideas. And it's really outside of this kind of gerontocratic structure that pervades the, the troops. That's really nice. And I like how you broke that down from like rural and urban mm-hmm. and how I'm also seeing a class issue. If we were to delve into the urban, like who can make it? Do you, did you, do you see intersectionalities of like classism? Mm-hmm. Who gets to make it to these urban uh, private dance ballets, for, um, whether it's inner city, obviously, if it's, you know, people who are living in the countryside, there's 
going to be issues of access, right? right. So I guess I'm thinking mm-hmm. with the urban, in it, if it's like this urban setting, who really is that audience who's making it into these schools? Right. So not audience, but who are the practitioners? Yeah, the practitioners. Yeah. Um, well, okay. I think there, those are two questions. So there's the question of like, who's coming from the countryside and you're right. I mean, you have to have some in, if you live in a village and say you're, um, you're really into dance or music and you understand that there's this, um, great, you know, system of troops in Conakry and people end up making it. And by the way, people really do end up making it. So just kind of to backtrack a little bit there, like when I lived in Conakry, when I was in my early twenties, um, um, and then I, 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 I took a break and didn't come back until I was doing my PhD in 2009. So I left in 2005, came back in 2009, and over half of the artists who I had been in contact with were either in Europe or in the U.S. or in Canada or in Australia. Mm-hmm. So many people really do end up traveling and kind of making lives for themselves and um, kind of forging um, lives and dance outside of Guinea. Um, and, so, and so it really, it, there are a lot of success stories. And so just to kind of imagine if you're a young person in, in a rural village, like what is the intrigue, right? I mean, there really is this promise of making it. And, um, but you're right, there are access issues. I mean, uh, you know, it, it really depends. I think a lot of times young people from villages end up in Quinacri if they have family in Quinacri, right? So it's, it's not necessarily that they have to be super upper class or have a lot of money or something. I mean, they have to be able to get the transport to get from the village to Quinacri, which is not, you know, huge, and then have some place to stay, right? Um, and which a lot of people do who live in villages have some relation who lives in Quinacri. So, so yeah, I mean, there, there are some access issues. I mean, if you're, if you're extremely poor in a village and you have no contacts in Quinacri, then maybe it's not going to happen. But, you know, I knew plenty of kids from villages who ended up in Quinacri um, because they were really good drummers, say, in their village or something like that. Um, it, 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 I saw it happen more with drumming than dance, perhaps because the dance in villages tends to be less organized. It's not like necessarily in ballets. Um, and so people don't, I don't know. I mean, I haven't spent that much time in the countryside to really talk about like who comes and, and how, um, but I saw more drummers than dancers. Now within the city, there's definitely, there are class issues, um, but but it's perhaps in the other way than, than you're thinking. Because um, when I say private, I don't mean exclusive, right? When I say private, I mean not um, organized by the state, but these are these are definitely troops that are open to anyone who wants to come in. I mean, all you have to do is express interest and come and um, usually you present some cola nuts with a little bit of money. I mean, a very little bit of money, a few dollars, right? Um, maybe a letter from your parent um, or your parent comes with you and you come and say, I would like to join this troop. So there's the, the bar to access is, is um, has nothing to do with class or money or, you know. Um, but if you come from a high class family, it's very unlikely that your parents will support that, right? So um, 
most people I know who, you know, grew up in families where the parents wanted them to go to school, wanted them to go to college. Um, the, the parents were not at all in favor of, of the, the um, person becoming an artist and, and partly because it in Quinacre it operates as a kind of alternative to the formal school system. And this isn't necessarily meant to be that way, but it, it functions that way insofar as being an artist is all consuming. Um, often the hours of the rehearsals coincide with the hours of school. And I, I, you know, I saw a couple troops trying to work with that and have their hours be separate, but it was, you know, it's just tough that getting transport for a young person to get transport, just to get across the city, to get to one place in, in these big, you know, um, shared, uh, you know, taxis. I mean, they're like vans, right? And they have the same thing, I'm sure, in Senegal. But it, it can take a long time just to get across the city to one destination, not to mention get to your school and then to get to your troop and then get home to, you know, if you're a young woman, probably cook dinner. Um, it's just too much for, for a young person. So usually, uh, you know, it's how people choosing, even if they did want to go to school when they're younger, if, the, if they were really in love with dance um, or, or music, um, you know, they, they made a choice. And so I think, you know, if you come from a family where the expectation is that you go to college or that even that you go through high school, um, you know, dance is not the, the avenue that your parents are going to be most uh, excited about. And I knew a lot of people who had huge physical altercations with their parents over this over years and years. Um, and, you know, I, I think this is changing insofar as like a lot of artists are really making it and they're able to support their families. And when families see that, you know, you could go to college and in Conakry and not be able to have a job, but you could become a great artist and uh, support your family, you know, the, 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 um, I guess the tables are turning a little bit uh, for that. And so, but still, I hear a lot of stories of people, people's parents not wanting them to do it and stuff like that. Thank you for that breakdown. Um, I guess it's really nice to see from the small level, right, to jumping on the bus and the sacrifices that need to be made to mm -hmm. like the state level of how dance. And I think when I really like how you put it in the book, it's not about what it is, but what dance does. Mm -hmm. um, and that it speaks volumes to what this art is. So another question I guess I had in mind while you were speaking um, about the ceremonies, and I know this also happens in these circles, the summer circles, how improvis improvising uh, dance moves, it takes place in these moments. Um, and you make the argument that these also reveal who consider themselves as political or apolitical. So mm -hmm. can you speak to how um, improvisational, wow, let me not get this wrong. Improvisation. <laughs> Improvisational dance um, can actually, even if they consider themselves apolitical, they're actually playing an active role in transforming societal norms and values. Right. Um. Well, okay, let's start with this. I think that, you know, a lot of times, especially in Conakry, um, there's this long history of artists considering themselves apolitical. And I think part of this is just this was a kind of way of 
staying safe in Secretary Skinny. I mean, because artists were very much political. I mean, they were the, you know, essentially the diplomat, the cultural diplomats of the state. Um, and even if they worked in troops that, that did not tour internationally, they were, um, they were diplomats internally for messages of the state and for themes and, and, and whatnot. So, um, so they've always been political in that sense, but people always considered themselves apolitical in the sense like don't express political preferences openly unless it supports the party. I mean, people recognize that, that there was serious danger in being too political. Um, and I think, you know, many artists came from pretty, um, um, you know, say uh, uh, they didn't come from families of means. They um, they were really excited to have this opportunity to work in these companies and, and they didn't want to rock the boat. So I think during Secretary Guinea, artists learned like politics is dangerous. And indeed, I mean, Secretary was in, in many ways a pretty ruthless um, dictator, right? I mean, he killed his regime, killed a lot of people. A lot of people went um, went uh, to, to other countries in the region or, or, or um, escaped. Um, and and it was especially intellectuals and people who who were you know into politics and whose opinions could have been threatening to the regime, right? So, so I think you know artists have long thought of themselves as apolitical, and and so you know even in the contemporary era in Guinea, when you know you have d- democracy and these elections where people go around saying who they're for, you know, even there, artists often say, we're, you know, we're just, that's not who we are, right? That's not what we do. And so because of that, in some ways, I think they're dismissed in, in political analyses of, of Guinea, because the idea is like, they're not activists, right? Um, they'll just tow the party line or, or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, going back to this question about creativity and authority, I mean, I think this is part of, of my argument about what how dance has has always been a kind of negotiation with authority in Guinea because, you know, I mean, we have this idea that um, I think in liberal democracies, there's an idea that like uh, authority is the opposite of creativity, right? Or that um, creativity or genuine creativity can't exist within an authoritarian, you know, political economy. Um, And I think in Guinea that, that, that never really rung true. Um, I think in part because, you know, if dance had only been the um, kind of purely instrumental media of the state, it it would have disappeared. The type of dance that existed under the Ture regime just would have disappeared when Ture died. Um, if it was purely, you know, purely political. And I think so, so that instrumentalization was always partial and I think even the, in, in going back to this idea of like magic and, you know, the, the kind of metaphysical and, and social and political power built into the arts, you know, I think, um, I think, you know, Ture was, was well aware that, that it was important to maintain a sense of curiosity and excitement and affect and like genuine interest, which is what we call creativity, right, in, in the arts, right? And if those artists didn't have that, well, then what would what would dance be? I mean, it wouldn't entice the observers. It wouldn't make people feel along with the performers, which is like exactly why it's like a really good political medium, 
right? Um, and, and especially across various different languages and, you know, areas where literacy levels were low, right? I mean, you could bring a troop and it could pull people together, you know, through affect. And so, you know, during the Turi era, there was always this way in which, like, there were some in some areas in which dancers were censored, right? They were, uh, especially at the level of theme, like what 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 is your piece about? What is the title, right? Um, what is the you know narrative, right? And so most of these pieces were that were staged had some kind of you know narrative arc, um, theme, and then but within that like what dance movements you actually um, you actually perform, that stuff wasn't ever really censored. And so what happened was like you had this dance culture that grew up around um, accepting authority in one domain while being incredibly, you know, creative and spontaneous and, and open to improvisation in another. And so, you know, I mean, to this day, the, the, the titles of shows or uh, productions put on by Guinean um, ballet companies tend to be, you know, fairly formulaic, trite even sometimes, right? I mean, it could be like peace and national unity or, you know, the value of work or the, these types of themes that were celebrated in the Ture era as well. Um, but the movement at the level of movement, there's like all this intricacy that never received any censorship. And so that's where, that's why I find, you know, it's so interesting to analyze the dance at the level of movement um, because that was where creativity always flourished in Guinea. And that, and, and I think it was by allowing um, artists to have this kind of free reign over how they interpreted what a body can do within any given rhythm. Um, you know, it, it really allowed people to, to, you know, produce movement that was in accordance with what they were interested in, what they were excited about, right? And so, I mean, just coming back, it's a long way of coming, but I think we kind of need it to come back to this question of like what it means for apolitical actors to, to be political through dance, right? I think it's that like we tend to go, you know, if we're trying to do a political analysis of an emerging democracy or something, we go and we see who has like signs in the street, right? And what do those signs say? And what do those activists say? Well, in Guinea, that is a very classed phenomenon, right? So it tends to be upper class, educated people, especially if you're talking about women, you know, who who is a political activist? It's gonna be a university student. Um, these tend to be people who have a certain means, right, and, and are literate and have access to certain narratives about, you know, what it means to be um, X, Y, or Z, uh, what, what it means to be a, a feminist or what it means to be, you know, democratic or this or that. Um, whereas I don't really think that is, it's not very inclusive in Guinea. If you're trying to really understand the political sensibilities of like the average person, um, I don't really think you can look only at, you know, who's, who's mobilizing a kind of activist campaign, right? And, but, but that doesn't mean that people don't have political sensibilities and political subjectivities and ideas of like how authority should operate, 
for example, right? And so I think, you know, dance is a really fascinating area for that because you can, you can kind of analyze what's going on within people's bodies. And also it, it allows, I mean, you know, I think the example of Dunyamba is really interesting for young women because young women, you know, may not be able to openly say, you know, I feel powerful and I'm as powerful as a man or something along the lines that we would think of as like a Western feminist kind of um, um, byline or something. (laughs) But yet they can do that with their bodies, right? And they can do that in the dance circles where where they don't have this kind of um, gerontocratic authority. So, you know, I, I think it's just an area where you can kind of tease out all kinds of narratives that may not be able to be spoken um, and that are kind of under under the, the radar of, of political analysis, typically. That was, uh, I mean, you just answered all questions. In- <laughs> that was a really good, um, just comprehensive way of showing what dance is and how it can operate in different spaces. And do you think that also looks at, or in that comprehensive way that you put it, do you, is that when you speak to the transformations of change and becoming, particularly when you argue the transformation dancers in Guinea undergo themselves through their mm. practice, is that what you're also referring to? You know, I guess I think of, uh, and I mean, I, uh, for a reader, you'd have to um, maybe backtrack a little to this idea that there are like various transformations um, that I trace throughout the book, right? So there's the, the, the political transformation from state socialism to capitalism. Um, there's this movement from rural to urban that is both within the dance community, but also in the, the wider community, right? The, the city has sort of exploded over the last um, several decades, right? And then there's this personal transformation um, um, within dancers themselves, right? And I mean, I guess I think of that personal transfer- transformation both in the body, like from being a person who is sort of floppy and unformed, right, to someone who comports themselves in a particular way and is muscular and is confident. And this is just a transformation that I saw among young dancers over years of of training, right? So there's there's a kind of bodily change, right, between like a very young dancer and a more seasoned dancer. Um, there's an attentional change, you know. To, it's a and I, I guess when we're thinking about this as an alternative to the formal school system, it's like what does it mean to become a full person in any in any kind of educational system, right? So in this particular type of educational system, there's this very embodied way in which people come to have attention, like the younger dancers are sort of floppy and they're hitting each other and you don't want to be in line behind them because they're not aware of their space, right? Whereas a more seasoned dancer, I mean, they can be whirling around each other on stage and never hit each other because they have this very deep attention to where their body ends and another begins, even if their movement looks very explosive, right? Um, and so there's there's this kind of attention aspect and that's very embodied. And then of course, there's a, a, um, 
there's a transformation in terms of like having power over your own life, right? That can come out both in the semiotics of the dance, um, but also in the economic position of a seasoned dancer who is often also a you know sought after teacher, sometimes becomes a traveling performer, sometimes becomes a teacher abroad, um, right? And so there are all kinds of sort of bodily and social transformations um, that that I think people undergo personally through the dance. So readers take what they will from the book. Um, and while you were writing this, did you have an imaginary reader in mind? Mm. <laughs> um, um, what did you want or what would you want readers to take away from your book? Hmm. I think there are a couple things. I, I mean, the, this, I think this... this would be a hard question for you because even as I was like, this is, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm so curious to know because I was like, this is going to be a little bit, this is a tricky one. <laughs> okay, so wait, I'll throw it back to you. Like, why do you think oh, it's no. tricky? <laughs> I'm curious. There's so many, there's so many concepts that you put in the book in terms of how we even look at, you know, training and education and when we look at a context of Guinea Conakry, for example, right, what does it mean to be political for the person over there? So you're mm -hmm. broadening that context for us to consider um, artists and to really expand beyond the literary text. That was my takeaway from it, really, is mm -hmm. to look at lived theory and not just what people write, but also the bodies of what their bodies do and what that means. So that transformative power of dance that you talk about is what these bodies can do when they're not even speaking can actually translate into a political movement. So that was my takeaway. But once again, if I break that sentence down, there are so many theories. <laughs> So I was like, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I like that take and, and I like that take from like a different disciplinary perspective where you're you, you typically are looking at texts and, you know, this is this is kind of pushing you in a different direction. And, you know, I think in anthropology, we always look at at I mean, we, we tend not to look at texts that much. Right. So maybe in anthropology, that takeaway would be um, wouldn't be a salient for people. Um, but the, the stuff about affect and politics not being located in activism, but also politics not always being located in kind of the the, the themes or the the areas of life where we expect it to, to. So I think like anthropologists tend to consider important um you know, what sometimes is referred to as like dark, the dark areas of life, right? The stuff that we know is politically um, meaningful, right? Like, you know, gender or race or um, power differentials or, right, um, any kind of, of um, uh, stuff about, about, you know, power relations in, in society. And I think, you know, as a young, as a young student, um, writing about dance felt like a little bit of a, an uphill battle in anthropology, not because people weren't interested in it, but it, because it didn't, it didn't have a long legacy of at least like really important books on dance. Um, it didn't have a legacy as a topic that was considered serious, maybe in the discipline. And I think there's, it's a little bit sad to me because I think, you know, um, political subjectivities are forged, you know, in art and sport 
in love, in, you know, all kinds of areas of life that are, are maybe attached to positive sort of affects or emotions. Um, uh, and, and, and I think it's, it's, it's too bad if we um, sort of shy away from those topics because we're worried that they're too pretty or something, or that they don't have the kind of hard-hitting force that a book about, you know, exclusion does. Right now, and and I think ultimately this book this book hits you know all kinds of of areas that are typically of interest to anthropologists, but 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 it, it wasn't obvious maybe when I when I began thinking. So so I think um, I mean when 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 I think about takeaways, I do want people to think about political subjectivity more broadly and and think about the power of 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 all of these kind of embodied practices to forage our political subjectivities, even in the U.S. When we think about like what do we do that makes us into who we are as political subjects? I mean, it's not just your activism. Right. It's what do you do in your spare time? It's how do you interact with your friends? It's what do you read? It's right. What do you watch? All of this type of stuff that um, sometimes is attended to maybe more closely, like in media studies, um, but but in anthropology, a little bit less so. Um, so there's there's that. And there's also like I think in anthropology, there's often a kind of separation of like the anthropology of art and dance and music and then urban studies. Right. And they, and they often don't um, intersect very much. There's all of this attention to infrastructure and the semiotics of material infrastructure, which I think is fascinating. Um, but then not a lot of attention to sort of the materiality of semiotic infrastructure, which I think is what this book is about. So, you know, like how signs forge lived reality, I think, is is kind of the ultimate um theme of the book. Um, and, and so, yeah, so it's a semiotic ethnography that is not only for like semiotic nerds. Um, and, and maybe to you that, I don't know if that makes sense, but within anthropology, sometimes, sometimes cultural anthropologists think of semiotics as like this kind of scary or nerdy area, or it's some, somehow an area of study that's, that's related to being textual or something, which I, which I don't think is true at all. Um, so I hope it invites cultural anthropologists to think about semiotics and, and think of that as an interesting area of study. Um, yeah. <laughs> and what about you? How did um, writing this book and finishing it out leave you? Did it leave you wanting to delve more into certain areas related to dance or... Um, doing something completely different <laughs> how did how did this leave you yeah i mean for one thing i i think it left me just really enamored with the process of of writing and becoming a better writer and i and i think maybe this is going to be controversial for um academics but i really like peer review <laughs> i really like um <laughs> the 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 fact that we get to spend our lives um sort of thinking and then learning from other scholars so so i mean to me i guess my next step in my career it, this this book i i guess made me think because i uh, just to backtrack a little i think books uh, so we typically as anthropologists you know, write articles first, and then we write books. And and I think books are more attentive to audience than our articles. Our, our articles can be 
in the kind of ultra nerdy category of, you know, cite every author who is relevant and spin deep theory and, and books have to do that and, and, you know, try to be accessible and, and tell a story and um, be beautiful. And, and I think it just made me think a little bit more about writing and how I want to be a writer and not just an academic writer. So just as a kind of personal thing, um, uh, in my next project, I'm interested in tacking back and forth between the academic and the public realm in terms of writing, um, trying my hand at that. And, you know, I think it, the other thing it taught me is that um, it's worthwhile to study something you love because you don't get sick of it especially in anthropology where, you know, or any of these disciplines, many disciplines in the liberal arts where you, you choose a topic and it's going to be your topic for a decade, at least. <laughs> so you better, <laughs> you better like it and you better not choose it just because it's sexy or because somebody in the discipline told you it should be written or something, because by the time you write the book, it will have already been written if that's your approach. So I think, you know, uh, uh, for, for me, that that deep love of this dance and deep respect for the people doing it um, carried me pretty far in terms of just never getting sick of the topic and always feeling like I, I just had this connection to it that didn't didn't go away. Um, and and I know a lot of people who you know over years and years writing about that the, their topic they just want to get it done. Like their approach to their book is. Ah, oh, just get this done. Just get it off my plate. I'm just sick of it. And I never, I never felt that, right? And I think I never felt that because I loved this dance, and um, and it came out of a genuine interest and not out of a desire to kind of tell the right story to anthropologists or to academics or whatever. Um, yeah. So, so my my next project is actually I'm working on a project that was just um, funded last year um, by Winter Gren, and it is about sport climbing um, in Colorado and Wyoming, which is where I live now. And it's my other great love. And it's also a weird topic for anthropology. It's about sport, and it's about embodiment, and it's about you know people's connections to non-human entities. In this case, rocks. Um, so you know, again, I'm kind of going out on a limb because I love it and I'm and and I have a conviction that if you love something and you want to do it every day then you probably can write something fun about it <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Dr. Cohen um, this has been a really great uh, conversation I enjoyed it I really can talk to you for like another hour especially the last couple of things you said I was like oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> but once again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun.
Thank you.